Hello everybody, this is the fifth sermon in our series looking at the book of Revelation. We are discovering that hope is being unveiled for the church and this week we're going to find that the witness of the church through their suffering is worthwhile. This is based on Revelation 8 verse 2 through to chapter 11 verse 19. When I was 16, I ended up in hospital for four days with a football injury. I had banged my head hard on the ground and the concussion resulted in amnesia. I completely forgot who I was and all the people I knew. Apparently, this was quite distressing for my parents, but I cannot remember it. The very first memory I have after the accident happens to be one of the most important in my life. The youth minister at the church, a man named Graham, came to visit me in hospital and after politely inquiring how I was, abruptly asked, Andrew, why are you not getting baptised? He knew that I'd been putting it off for a long time, not thinking it important or even necessary. Suddenly, in that moment, I felt as if God was pointing his finger at me. The accident had shown me that I was not as strong and independent as I thought I was. I knew I had been ignoring God's promptings before, and now was the time to obey. In that moment, I said yes to God, and it changed my life forever. Six months after getting baptised, I'd gone from never attending the Christian Union at school to leading it. This was the beginning of my calling into ministry. Did God cause that sporting injury to happen? I don't know. But he certainly used it. He got my attention in a way that he had not before when life had been easy. One thing I do know is that the injury was not enough on its own. If that minister had not had the courage to ask me a difficult question, I would have simply returned to life how it was. God used Graham's witness in tandem with my experience of trial to really break into my life. In this section of Revelation, we're going to find the same. God does use suffering to get people's attention. But if the church is not there to speak about Jesus, lives will still not be changed. This is why the church should keep going, even when maintaining the faith is difficult. Last week in Revelation 6 and 7, we read of Jesus opening the scroll of history. And although it was difficult to begin with, in the end it brought great reassurance to us. We learnt that God's people will suffer in this life. Alongside living in a fallen world, we will suffer sometimes precisely because we have chosen to side with Jesus. However, in the end, we will be vindicated for our faith. On the future day of the Lord, when Christ returns to hold the whole earth to account, we will pass through the judgment and enjoy living with God in his restored creation forevermore. It was a glorious promise, and all made possible by the Lamb of God dying for our sins and rising to new life. Jesus is the triumphant King, and if we hold on to him, we get to experience the joys of his victory. 
It may surprise us then that after completing the opening of the seven seals on the scroll of history, in Revelation 8, we find ourselves at the start of another series of seven. This time, seven trumpets. What is going on here? Well, what it cannot be is that the events described in these chapters occur after the opening of the seven seals chronologically. We've already had the great day of the Lord described to us. Eternity has already begun. By definition, nothing can follow that. What we discover here then is that Revelation is written in cycles. In fact, there are three of them. The seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Each one of these cycles goes back and describes the same period of history, but from a different perspective. This is the second one. Last week, the seven seals described the life and suffering of the church from the resurrection of Jesus until his return. This week, the seven trumpets are going to describe to us the judgment that comes upon the ungodly or those who oppose God's people in that same time frame. The content of this section is at times difficult and disturbing. But remember that Revelation was written to give its readers hope. Whether we are the 1st century church facing persecution or the 21st century church facing the coronavirus, the ending contains very good news. The scene is set in the opening verses of chapter 8 as we read of the prayers of the faithful ascending to God like incense from the altar. We already know the content of these prayers because in verse 10 of chapter 6 we heard them being cried out. As believers suffered for their faith, they called out to God for him to judge their persecutors and vindicate their sacrifice. Although it might not have seemed like it at the time, God heard those prayers and is going to answer them. He's going to bring judgment on all the ungodly down through the ages and the seven trumpets are going to show us how that works. At our midweek fellowship meeting this week, we honestly spoke of how difficult it can be to read Revelation when many of our family and friends do not yet know Jesus. In that light, this next section is going to be equally difficult to read. But what I want us to see right from the start is that God's judgment is always tempered with mercy. Everything we're going to read of is a necessary act as God calls the hard-hearted to repentance. At every stage, if those being judged repent, they will instantly find themselves numbered in God's people. The whole scene of Revelation 8 to 11 is designed to echo the Exodus story. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to God in pain, and he was moved by their plight and acted to rescue them. Israel's oppressors were so arrogant, it took ten plagues to do it. 
But with each plague, God gave the Egyptians, and Pharaoh in particular, the opportunity to turn to him and do the right thing by his people. That is why, as each trumpet sounds in this passage, we will get a plague like those found in Exodus 7-11. to God is again bringing his judgment to bear on the world, particularly on those who are acting against his people and his purposes. God is doing it to rescue the faithful from their clutches and to turn as many of the ungodly from the error of their ways as he possibly can. The first four trumpets come in quick succession. The first brings hail, fire and blood, which damage the earth on which humans live. In the first century, they might have thought of destructive storms. We might think of the recent wildfires on the news and the effects of climate change. The second speaks of the sea turning to blood, sinking the ships that brought trade to the nations. This is a disruption of commerce and the markets, causing financial ruin. The first century readers may have thought of the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, We might think of the recession being caused by this virus. The third trumpet sounds, and natural resources which ought to sustain human life get poisoned. Wormwood is a plant that is so bitter it renders water undrinkable. Losing access to clean water due to pollution was as common in the first century as it remains today. The fourth trumpet sounds and the world turns dark, causing a loss of vision among the people. In the first century, as Roman emperors stormed into an area, ordinary people's hopes and dreams were dashed. As a sufferer of poor mental health today, I cannot think of a better definition of depression caused by stress, overwork and breakdown. Can you see what is happening? These trumpets are releasing suffering into the world as we know it. Notice how for each of these trumpets, only a third of the world is damaged. It's not total destruction. These trumpets are sounding warning, not doom. The majority of humanity is allowed to survive being shown God's wrath against sin. Therefore, they are given the chance to repent. These miseries are being harnessed by God so that even the wicked might be offered mercy. God really is doing all in his power to bring wayward people to their senses. He's even prepared to temporarily devastate his beloved world in order to call them back. That is how much he loves us. In verse 13, John hears an eagle crying out woe on those who do not allow these dramatic signs to lead them to repentance. In the first four trumpets, all humans suffered indirectly. There are three more trumpets to come. Now God will start targeting judgment more specifically in the effort to get people to see the error of their ways. As the fifth trumpet sounds, God's starting to permit destructive things to happen to the ungodly. It's a scene like that in the book of Job, where God permits Satan to attack, but only to go so far. 
even Apollyon, the king of the abyss, whose name means destroyer, remains under God's control. He's just a pawn in his plan. As this trumpet sounds, we can think of the many shaped ills that particular people suffer in this life. Hardships, diseases, financial losses and broken relationships. What is key for us to notice here is that, again, they are only allowed to last for a limited season. The torment lasts for five months, in other words, less than half a year. They suffer less than the blessing that they'd undeservedly received from God in the other seven months. At this stage, God will not allow even the ungodly who are persecuting his people to die. Through all this judgment, he is holding out the opportunity for them to repent and to turn to him. God is like a parent wrestling with a disobedient adolescent teenager. He's doing everything he possibly can think of to get them to open their eyes to the damage they are causing to themselves and to others. The sixth trumpet is the sounding of the final warning for the inhabitants of the earth. When trumpet seven sounds, it will all be too late. This time, the warning is death. Not their own death, but the death of others around them, people they love and care for. As the trumpet sounds, plagues are released that kill a third of humankind. It's again done with the object of moving the rest to repentance. Remember that this is an apocalyptic vision. We should not be taking these numbers literally. What is going on here is that God's wrath is being revealed against sin. He is responding to the prayers of the martyrs. He is justly dealing with all the evil that is being perpetrated against them. He simply would not be the holy God if he didn't. But notice this, it's important. Every single death of a non-believer that takes place is carried out under God's jurisdiction. God doesn't want anybody to die, so this action is perfectly balanced. God allows the exact number of people to die that will enable the largest possible number to be saved. It is always a tragedy when war, disease, road accident, terrorist attacks or even old age takes the lives of unbelievers. But each one of them had the chance to turn to God at some point and God will allow only the smallest amount to go in order to rescue the most. I know people who have begun the journey to faith when the death of a loved one shook them so hard they started asking questions. That is what is going on here. The sad news though is that even after all these acts, the natural disasters, the crashing of the economy, the personal suffering and the death of loved ones, verse 20 and 21 tell us that some still will not repent and turn to God. Their idolatrous desire of money, sex and power is just too strong for them. As C.S. Lewis wrote, Through pain, God has lovingly sounded his megaphone to rouse a death world. But even when they hear God's call, some in our world still choose to ignore it. For them, 
there will soon be no turning back. So the sixth trumpet has sounded, but before the seventh and final blast comes, there is another timely intermission. Just as in the series of the seven seals, John stops all the action to bring hope and assurance to the church. And this is where my opening illustration comes in. In permitting me to have a fairly serious injury, God got my attention. But I only truly gave my life to him when the message of the gospel was brought to me in that prepared state. The suffering of the accident softened my heart. The church then announced Jesus to me so that I could invite him to enter it. This intermission does the same. It explains the role of the church while the earth suffers. Ultimately, it gives us the assurance that even though we might suffer for our faith at times, our ongoing witness will prove worthwhile in the end. This intermission has a few parts to it, so let's take one at a time. First of all, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10, something bizarre happens. John is given a message from an angel about seven thunders, but he's not allowed to record it or disclose it. It is forever to remain a mystery. What is going on here? In the Old Testament, particularly in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is declared to be like thunder. And as he speaks into the world, it brings him glory. But why are we not allowed to hear what God says? It is probable that this is a clever device to teach the church that we will never fully understand the purposes of God. We will never know how God will use judgment to bring people to himself. For example, right now, we have no idea why God has allowed this virus to happen and how he might be using it for his good. This sort of information is simply beyond us. As humans, we cannot fully take in the wisdom of God. We just have to trust what we know to be true, that God is good, all-loving, and desires no one to perish. These opening verses to the intermission tell the church that we will not always understand what is happening in the world. We have to stop guessing and simply get on with the task we've been given. The seventh trumpet is about to be sounded. The end is coming. There is an urgency to our work. People need to hear the gospel. The next part of the vision sees John being given a scroll and being asked to eat it. Once he has digested it, he is to proclaim its contents. This is exactly what happened to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. At first, the scroll tastes sweet to John, but then it turns sour. This is the reality of the gospel as it's preached into the world. For some, it will sound like incredibly good news. They will believe it and receive the sweetness of eternal life. But some will reject the gospel. To them, that same gospel will announce their judgment and death. For without the forgiveness of Christ, there is no hope for anyone. The church are to be in no doubt about their task. To preach the gospel is to plead with unbelievers to turn to their loving father before it's too late. The next part of the vision, in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 11, 
find John being asked by God to go and measure off the temple. This is an image of safety. By marking it off, the temple is being protected from harm. As this whole intermission is about the role of the church, the temple here must stand for believers. The New Testament teaches us that Christians as individuals and as the church together are now the temple of God on earth. By the Holy Spirit, we are the place where God now dwells. But notice how this part of the vision ends. Although the core of the temple is protected, the outer courts are left vulnerable and are even trampled on by outsiders. In other words, as the church goes about its task of preaching the bittersweet gospel, it will be buffeted, it will be attacked, it will be persecuted, but we can be assured that it will not fall. The attack lasts for 42 months or 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. Three and a half is half of the complete number seven, which is used throughout Revelation. In other words, the persecution of the church will be restricted by God. It will remain incomplete. The church will survive to the end. With this news that the church will be protected for eternity, but will be buffeted in the present, the vision then rolls into another set of images. This time, two witnesses preach the faith. These two witnesses are then described as two lampstands connected to two olive trees. What is all this about? Well, as always with Revelation, the clues are all in the Old Testament. In Bible times, you needed two witnesses to validate truth. So what they are announcing is the true message of salvation that the world need to hear. Olive trees produce olive oil, which in the first century was used in lamps for light. In Zechariah 4, this image of olive trees is connected to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit supplies the source of power for witness. And as we already know from Revelation 1, the image of the lampstand is used for the church in the world, shining God's light out for all to see. So these two witnesses are the church empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the truth of the gospel into the world. But there is one more layer to this imagery. At his transfiguration, two Old Testament prophets appeared to witness to who Jesus really was. They were Moses and Elijah. Through Moses, God had brought the ten plagues on Egypt, which we have already seen is the imagery that this whole section is based upon. Through Elijah, God stopped the rain falling as he stood up to the prophets of Baal and the ungodly duo of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Both Moses and Elijah were known for the way they stood up for God in the face of the powerful and the wicked. So here is the complete message. Up until Christ returns, the church must preach the gospel into the world, particularly as the world suffers the consequences of its sin. The gospel will be divisive. Some will believe it and some will reject it. Some will react so angrily they will use their power to persecute God's people. That is what the first century churches were experienced under the Roman emperor and that's what many Christians around the world experience today. 
But the church must keep going. They must keep speaking of Jesus. This is our God-given vocation. The vision goes on to tell us that some in the church will even die for their faith. For three and a half days, again an image of an incomplete amount of time, the church will suffer at the hands of the powerful and the ungodly. The present equivalents of Sodom and Egypt will mock them, but they are to hold on. The church as a whole will not die out, and the individual martyrs themselves will find themselves vindicated through resurrection after death. On that day they will know their service has been well completed. It's only now, after all this judgment and suffering, after the witness of the persecuted church, do we get to the glorious good news that this whole section of the vision has been aiming for. In verse 13 we read these words. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What this tells us is that the church's witness through suffering is effective. It succeeds where the plagues on their own failed. Finally, the ungodly in the world see the error of their ways, turn to the Lord in repentance and start to give him the glory he is due. They confess their sins, receive salvation and enter God's kingdom. And the amazing news is that before that final moment, far more people will have done this than we can possibly have imagined. As the mocking city of Sodom finally collapses, only 10% of it is destroyed. The other 90% is saved. In Genesis, God promised Abraham he would save Sodom if only 10 righteous people were found. But on that occasion, he couldn't even find that many. By the end of the church's witness, Nine-tenths, symbolic of a huge amount, if not quite all, will have turned to faith in Christ. Another figure is given. It says 7,000 people are killed in the final earthquake as the city of evil falls. When God was judging Israel through Elijah in the Old Testament, there were only 7,000 people left in the land who had kept the faith and not turned to Baal. After the church's witness, that number is reversed. Only 7,000 will perish. The majority will have turned to Christ and have been rescued. This is glorious good news. After all the smoke and fire, after all the bone-chilling pictures of God's judgment as the trumpets have sounded, comes wonderful hope. God has done everything he possibly could to rescue and restore his world. That mission involved righteous judgment, but it is completed when the ungodly turn to trust in the death of the Lamb and receive his forgiveness. At the end of time, not all will have bowed the knee to Christ, and they will experience the consequences of that. But God will have shown mercy to every single person who repented and turned to him, and there will be very many of them. Revelation is about the Lamb conquering over evil. 
and the church joins that triumph as they continually announce his sacrifice to the world no matter what troubles come their way. In verse 15 of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounds and finally the end has come. Through Christ's return and final judgment, heaven and earth come together and the kingdom of Christ comes in full on the earth. It is the final woe in that now the evil and the wicked and the unrepentant are finally removed. But for the faithful and for those who came to faith even at the last second, it is their reward and vindication. God has kept his covenant promise. His presence can now be enjoyed. It will be a time of everlasting worship and praise. This is the great hope that we live for. For the first century church, this passage meant holding on to the faith and refusing to worship the emperor, no matter what pressure was applied to them. For us today, it means preaching and pleading for the gospel particularly as people suffer through this coronavirus crisis. The hope unveiled in the vision of the seven trumpets is that in the end, the sacrificial witness of the church through their time of suffering will prove worthwhile. Hallelujah for that.